You're listening to the One of Us.net Podcast Network. One of Us is a podcast and video network funded all but entirely by donations and subscriptions. We do accept pitches for audio-based or banner ads, but on a case-by-case basis. If you're interested in that, contact us at oneofusnet at gmail.com. With the amount of audio and video content we generate, it is expensive and extremely time-consuming to keep things running. Please go to the webpage oneofus.net and sign up for a subscription at 2 5 10 or $25 and get a ton of bonus content. One of us needs and appreciates all your support. It's time for Digital Noise, starring John Golson. That's me. And Chris Cox. And also featuring the voices of Monkey, Jack, and Meg occasionally in the background. <laughs> Sorry, that's a, that's the cats, and they're being very needy right now. So they all. There was a moment when I first walked in where they were all three on me at the same time. All like I felt very Ace Ventura. <laughs> With my arms outstretched, just covered in animals. Right? So, Or Dr. Doolittle. Normally, they cycle through and take turns, where one of them will come, and then the other one will come, and it's like this time they all three were like, yes! <laughs> Must be the candy smell. I don't know. You just came from uh, promoting Halloween Man, the comic book that you are an artist on. I did. Uh, isn't there some new volume of that that's out recently? There is. I can promote this at the beginning on Global Comics. uh a brand new issue called Entropy. The title of the issue is Entropy. And I colored, I never colored a full length comic before. And I colored a full length comic. I have work on there as well. I would point people to one called beyond October. And I think that's, I think that stuff is free to read, uh, for a limited time. I don't know when it goes back to not being free, hmm. but it's all at globalcomics.com. Uh, have you penciled any of the work? Yeah. That book um, as well? Beyond October has some of my actual pencils, inks and, colors and then there's a mr hyde issue where i did both covers and i did all the inks and i did a backup story in it awesome um so yeah didn't you also get back from a trip relatively recently for a filming thing uh sort of that was i had i had pickup shots for something that shot in july oh okay so, and so we I, can expect a new thing coming out I had relatively soon for that and they'll have to submit that to festivals can you say what and it is? Carnivals, as Kevin from The Office says. <laughs> One of my favorite lines from The Office. Uh, uh, it's going to be called Don't Eat the Liverwurst. At least that's what it was called, what it was shooting. Uh, and I don't know what, I don't know where it will end up. I shot like. Is it a horror movie? No, I shot three things all in a row. So, and all of the, all three were shorts. And one I think was called. Uh, I think it's called All the Marbles. Okay. And, and I have a really small part in it. Then there were two from filmmakers I'd done a feature called Ultimate World who wanted to work with me and wrote two nice juicy parts for me. Mm. And one is horror, and it's called Don't Touch That Dial. And the other one is a drama with some music in it. Like, I actually sing in it. Hmm. Uh, and it's called Don't uh, tr- Don't 
eat the liverwurst. Okay. Wow, you uh, sing in it. I yeah. didn't even know you were considered yourself a uh, singer, John. I do. I sing in it. I sing an original composition in it. Um, what? Yeah. Uh, and Songs but those are and still like those by. are a ways out. Those are like twenty twenty four. Okay. And I, and I don't know where. I mean, that's like, not they'll that end far. up in film festivals. And film carnivals. And people will <laughs> be like at a where. festival and they'll be watching it and they'll go, why do I know that guy's voice? Yeah. And it'll be me. It'll be you. Yeah. And they'll be like, that's the guy from Digital Noise. That's that Digital Noise guy. I remember hearing about this months ago. <laughs> and look at him now on the Oscar stage. By the way, I know it must have been a weird kid, but when I was a kid, liverwurst sandwiches were like among my favorite. Oh, really? I just loved liverwurst, man. Crazy about it. And then... Uh, I don't know. My grandmother used to like buy the big loaves of liverwurst and yeah. spoon it out onto, onto sandwiches. I thought it was great. And then I hadn't had any for 20 plus years. And like last year, I was like, Oh man, I used to love liverwurst. I'm going to get some of that. And I was like, gag. Oh my God. This is awful. What was I thinking? <laughs> What's the cheese? Limburger. And I oh, had a I book. Can eat some I had Limburger. a book as a kid where like, I think it was a Sesame Street book. And Oscar the Grouch was talking about his favorite foods, and one of them was like strawberry ice cream covered in sardines. <laughs> but the other one was a liverwurst sandwich with Limburger cheese. Mm-hmm. And so my only point of reference for those two food items were they were things that Oscar the Grouch ate. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think liverwurst is a very strong odor, and so does Limburger. Although yeah. I'll tell you, I was at a, a cheese fest at South by one year, and they had Limburger, and I was the same kind of thing where my only exposure was like kids' books where it was like, it's so smelly and awful. And they had it under a glass case. It was the only cheese that had a protective case. Because you open it up and you're like, wow, that does kind of smell like old socks or something. But then you ate it and you're like, oh my god, it's delicious. <laughs> was it more ubiquitous back then? Because I've never actually been in the same room with Limburger cheese. I think it was of just a popular thing in children's novelty music. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't know. Uh Yeah. Limburger cheese. You should try it, though. Close your nose, hold your nose and try it. It's okay, tasty. I will. Uh, you know, it's funny though. Leonard Cohen, I think it was, had like a thing, song with things that don't go together. Yeah. And one of them was ice cream and bacon. Sorry, Leonard. I've had ice cream with bacon bits in it and you are mistaken. <laughs> it was really delicious. <laughs> I can see it. I, can I mean, see it. we were having a challenge. What wouldn't go with bacon? And we really had a hard time being absolutely certain about anything. Hmm. Yeah, it's a tough, it's a tough call. Yeah, I'll have to think on that one. Yeah, because the first, you, the things pop in your head, you're like, no, no, wait, that is a thing that people put bacon in. You know, I mean, even Jello, you're like, I'm sure people would put it in there and it was fine. Yeah. <laughs> Probably so. Hmm. Yeah, I know, it's tough. Hmm. And someone was like, gummy bears, and then we're like, immediately went, no, because they make candied bacon. If you wrapped some candied bacon around gummy bears, don't you think that would be tasty? They're like, yeah, probably. <laughs> Huh. I don't know. I'm think I'm thinking. Anyways, we'll come back to that. We'll but first, we have what I believe is the l- absolute most amount of think titles we've ever tried to accomplish Let's go. on a single Let's show. Tear this through week. it, one we after are. the other after the other. And we're going to start off with the new 4K release of Enter the Dragon, the 1973 blockbuster Bruce Lee film that not only brought Bruce Lee into being the biggest star in the world, but uh, he didn't live to enjoy it. Unfortunately, because he died, I think, before it even actually came out. But nonetheless, he had, I think there were, what, three other complete 
uh, Bruce Lee films before that in the can. Yeah, something like that. And so those got a re-release. And, you know, regardless, posthumously, he became one of the biggest stars in the whole world. And if you've only seen one Bruce Lee film, this is probably the one you've seen, which oddly is the least Chinese martial arts traditional film of any of the stuff films he made. This one really feels like it's more of a sort of very, very Americanized spy picture. Yeah. Um, which isn't a criticism of it at all. I mean, I think on that level, it's a really great sort of spy picture with some martial arts in it, but martial arts is not the strongest, the leading point of this film. Maybe, but I feel like for a lot of people, it was their entry point, right? Yeah. So, so they had no point of reference other than like, oh, this is the martial arts movie. Like, well, for the longest time, this was the only Bruce Lee film I'd seen, but I'd seen like eight Jackie Chans. I was like, why does everyone think Bruce Lee was better than anybody else? Clearly, Jackie Chan was a better martial artist. And whether or not that's true is irrelevant. I'm not the right person to judge. But then you watch the other Bruce Lee films you're like, oh, wait, these have a lot more show off martial arts. And <laughs> yeah. so this one is more. Oh, because he's fighting people like Jim Kelly and John Saxon, who, while themselves were martial artists, they were not even, you know, even close to on the level of of Bruce Lee in terms of experience and training. Bruce Lee was a national champion, multiple multiple black belts. He was a big deal. Uh, Enter the Dragon, like I said, it's odd because he's like a he's a instructor from Hong Kong and he's approached by a British intelligence agent who's investigating a crime lord named Han. Uh, and he's talked into going to this high profile martial arts, basically Mortal Kombat, um, <laughs> on an island, yeah. on this private island. It'll prove that, and his idea is to get in there, find a deep cover agent they had inserted and see if she's still alive, uh, cause they've lost touch with her. And as well, try and prove that this guy's involved with drug trafficking and prostitution. Um, and then also he finds out that, uh, the man who's responsible for his own sister's death is actually a bodyguard working on the island. But anyway, so he goes there posing as one of these people and then sneaks around a lot at night. In fact, everyone kind of sneaks around at night of the main characters there that we get to know at the tournament. Like I said, Jim Kelly and John Saxon being the two main ones. But I don't know. This is, it's goofy. It gets really goofy at points, but like in the best possible way. This is still fun. I enjoy rewatching it every time. And I think this 4K is a real solid little fix up. Um, the last, I mean, it's one of those films that every time it gets released, they put a lot of money and effort into releasing it and fixing up the picture because it was so influential. Yeah. Uh, but you know, I guess you could say then this is the best version yet. And it, it also comes great. with the Blu-ray in it as well. If, if, uh, you know, you like to have both copies, which I do. Yeah. 4K transfer looked great. I, I wish I had seen this earlier in my life. It's hard to, it's hard to assess it correctly because of how often it's been parodied and how, uh, how many other things have kind of stolen the, the sort of skeleton of it. Dude, I, I um, saw Kentucky Fried Movie before yeah, I saw I this. I saw Kentucky Fried so, Movie a thousand times before I saw this. Yeah, so I, as you're I, this watching was the it, first for me. As, really? Yeah. Because as you're watching it, I thought it, I had heads... seen it before, but when I, as I was watching it, I was like, oh, I've never actually seen this all the way through. And your head's inserting the stuff into uh, uh, a fistful of yen yeah. from uh, Kentucky Fried Movie because it actually sticks pretty closely to this film. It's yeah. like an almost scene-for-scene parody of it. <laughs> yeah, this was... But it's still... I could still really see the appeal and found it really engaging so even through all those years of uh of of influence it still had power i just wish i could see it separated from its reputation separated from its iconography uh i wish i could have seen it with virgin eyes but alas 
My eyes are not virgin. <laughs> Your eyes are fucked. Uh-huh. <laughs> Tell me I got these bifocal lenses. You got progressives on. Uh, unfo- the one bad thing about this, of course, is that as I said, this gets re-released at least once every other other year or so, in really nice editions. And there've been a lot of better editions in terms of bonus features because there's very little here. There's like a two minute they, you know, introduction. They keep doing that with 4K, yeah, and an audio commentary. Studios like when stu- and, and studios have all the rights to this stuff, and it's like, why, what are you doing? Like because they want people to stripping du- it down because they want people to double dip. They know how collectors are, and they're like they'll buy it again. Or do they want people to give it, give it up, give up physical media? Like we're gonna get you, we're gonna release it so bare bones that eventually you'll make the switch to well, just digital. I don't know, man. I think that they've realized that this is a different type of market than it used to be, and now it really is kind of a boutique market. And yeah. collectors are the way they are. I mean, I know people with the movies they love; they have to have every version of it ever released. You know, I, I think they're. Because 4K is still relatively new, all things considered, they're, they put out these films as the bare bones version in the thoughts that sooner or later they will sell this 4K version to some company like Arrow or Criterion or something like that. And then they put on all the extras for stuff or are, are honestly previous editions? Um, I'm not even 100% sure, but may have been put out by a company who owned the rights to those bonus features. So it's like, yeah. Uh, but then we've got New Fist of Fury. Which is, seems like a direct connection here because it was 1976 and China was looking desperately for somebody to be the new Bruce Lee. And there were lots of them, <laughs> like lots and lots. Nobody. There was a guy named Bruce Lee, L I. <laughs> yeah. 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 Bruce Lee, Bruce Lai. Yeah. Yeah. There was a, like every variation you can think of. But one of the people who actually was, uh, you know, first really marketed as a possible new Bruce Lee, even though they couldn't be more different was Jackie Chan. And in this film, New Fist of Fury, which is basically just a remake of Fist of Fury, but slightly different. Uh, here he was named as, uh, his first stage name, Sing Lung, which means becoming a dragon. The dragon iconography was very important when associated with anything Bruce Lee. Uh, but apparently he's still known by Sing Lung in, in China. Like they still call him that more than Jackie Chan, which is interesting. But. Uh, this was his first starring role in a very wide release film. He was in starring roles before this, but very small, limited release ones. Um, yeah, like I said, even though it's, it was put out as a sequel to this, I mean, it's basically just the same type of story, which is, uh, J- Japanese occupied Taiwan, um, and the, the Japanese are total dicks <laughs> and, uh, they, they're one school for Japanese martial arts there basically is going and beating up everybody else in the, the town. And Jackie Chan plays a guy who ain't, wants ain't that nothing. Always to, the way. Yeah. Jackie Chan plays a guy who's kind of just a thief and a scoundrel wants nothing to do with either side, but then he ends up getting motivated and he gets instantly better than anyone else and comes in and saves the day. Um, but this comes with two versions of it. One is significantly longer. The original 1976 version with much more subplots and stuff going on. And then there's a much, the stripped down re-release 1980 version, which I'll be, I'll be honest. That's the one I watched. It's <laughs> the, the much shorter version. I watched of it. the longer one. Oh, wow. Nice. Okay. So, uh, well, you know, well, not, not as, I mean, I was like, I was like, I'd never heard really great things about this. No, it was very boring. So I was like, I'm going to stick to the shorter, get to the action one. And I was like, it was all right. Yeah. I don't see any reason why you would watch this over fist of the original fist of fury or even, the best version of this tale, which is Jet Li's Fist of Legend, which is yeah. like hands down the best version of it. But yeah, it's okay. It's a, it's a, I look at this as more of a curiosity in Jackie Chan's career than a must see or anything. Cause he's not 
doing the Chan type stuff. There's no comedy. He's not doing the big silly stunts. Yeah. I mean, it's solid fighting, which he was always fully capable of, but, and, uh, it was before he got plastic surgery. So his face looks almost unrecognizably different at points. <laughs> You're like, is that Jackie Chan? Yes, it is. Uh, if this is from Arrow, which, you know, it looks really good. It sounds really good. Uh, there's multiple language versions on here. There's, um, a commentary, uh, uh, by two different people, depending on which cut you're seeing. Uh, there's uh, New Fist Part 2 Fist, which is a video essay where he con- uh, contrasts this with New Fist of Fury with New Fist of Fury Part or Fist of Fury Part 2, which is a different film entirely. Like I said, they were trying to get every last buck they could out of the Bruce Lee uh, cash cow. But yeah, it's all right. I don't think this is anything you need to rush to go get, even if you're really into martial arts. I did like much more film that's always been on my list of stuff to see. Cause I mean, I've had anytime there was any book about Chinese Hong Kong uh, and Hong Kong, the film industry, which was very rare up until maybe even a few years ago, I would immediately purchase it. Uh, and one of the book things, movies that was always really highly thought of was a film called a moment of romance. Mm-hmm. I never was even able to find a copy anywhere of it. And there was like, Two sequels to it. It won a bunch of awards. Uh, director, uh, Benny Chan ended up being a really big deal, uh, who did a lot of, uh, pretty big name martial arts films. And of course, it was a early success for massive heartthrob Andy Lau, who at this point was like literally considered one of the best looking men in the world. I recognized the name, but I wasn't sure if I had seen them in anything. Andy Lau? Yeah. Uh, you have, I'm relatively certain. I'm, I'm trying to say, isn't he? Uh, he's not the, he's not the one who's in, um, the Marvel film as the no. bad guy. No. Cause there's an, I always mix him up with another guy who's got a similar name. Tony Leung. Yeah. Tony Leung. Uh, who also like total hottie for his time. Um, but this is like, like he plays a gangster in Hong Kong, uh, and he's like a getaway driver type thing. And uh, the raid goes wrong. And he takes this young woman named Jojo, a hostage, and the the main like this older member of the gang's like, dude, you gotta kill her. And he's like, no, I don't. I, I think it's gonna be all right. I'll just hold on to her for a while. And of course, they fall in love. Oh. But the gang, the rest of the gang's like, no, you need to kill her. And that's basically the central conflict here. I mean, the title is both accurate and inaccurate because a moment of romance makes it sound like some weird like film that you would not be interested in seeing. That's just a, just that, just a moment of romance, but really there's a ton of action in this, uh, some cool, uh, car and motorcycle chase stuff. It's a very slick film that definitely, I would say belongs more to the heroic bloodshed genre than it does to the martial arts genre. Yeah. It's very nineties, uh, at times sort of like that nineties commercial slick or like music video slick. Like it has a very early nineties, uh, idea of what's cool and what looks cool beautiful people on motorcycles you know yeah no it's like it feels very akin with the ringo lamb and john woo movies of that era that it was really sort of like i don't know like a perfume ad almost (laughs) in its slickness lots of uh lights on rain covered streets type of thing and neon but he's in drunken master he's actually in pretty much every like like I was looking at his 
filmography just now, and it was like, oh, he's in tons of stuff, so of course I recognize his name. Yeah, if he's he, like a major motion picture movie star. It, it, yeah, he's won a <coughs> ton of awards. I mean, he's like he was a big deal for quite some time, and and still is uh, a big deal. You still see him appear in stuff all the time. Uh, and I think he was in. I want to say there was like a. There's at least one European film that he was in. That he's was, in the Matt Damon. Uh, he's in the Matt Damon film from a couple of years ago. That sort of like fantasy tinged. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I uh, know what you're film. talking about. He's in that one, and he's in the the. Are they called Wandering Earth? The sci-fi movies. I there's don't, like Wandering Earth one and two. I don't think I've seen those. Okay. Uh, what do you? Are they from Hong Kong? Yeah, they're like huge, big budget, gigantic sci-fi. They're like Roland Emmerich movies. Oh, okay. Hmm. Uh, like like Chinese Roland Emmerich movies. I did not even know about those. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think it's called. Yeah, The Wandering Earth and The Wandering Earth Two. Yeah. Okay. Were they good? I haven't seen them. Oh, okay. Uh, Wendy has watched them. I've been in the room with Does them. Does she like them? The trailers look cool. She likes them. She likes those kind of movies, though. I tend to not, so I haven't gone out of my way. Right. Um, my biggest problem with sci-fi or fantasy in Hong Kong is often that if they're doing it with CG, which is all they use now, yeah. um, the CG is not, it's like 25 years ago, CG quality, you know, it's not good. And I've seen a few exceptions for ones where they were like, we think this will cross over to an American and European audience. Uh, so they spent more money on it or their partners did. But most of the time you're like, yeesh, this is wonky. <laughs> yeah. Um, this comes, this uh, new Arrow release comes with, I'm sorry, this is not Arrow, actually. This is another company. Uh, yeah. They, I often get them. Oh, Radiance Films, who's been releasing a lot of these Asian films lately. Um, it does come with a archival inter- interview, uh, audio interview with the director. For 21 minutes, uh, there is a visual essay in Love and Danger, HQ Cinema Through a Moment of Romance. There's an audio commentary with by Frank Jeng, uh, who goes through facts and figures, and then the trailer. So it's not a lot of extra stuff, but this is one of those films that influenced a lot in Hong Kong cinema. It was like sort of a one of those ones where everybody wanted to copy it because it was such a success. Yeah. Uh, okay, we're gonna move on to not Hong Kong, but, <laughs> uh, Rio. Rio. <laughs> for the, the girl from Rio. Now, in my head, I was thinking this was another film when I asked for it. Um, I think there's one called The Man from Rio that's supposed movie, to be yeah. pretty good. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I've always wanted to see that. Okay. Do not mix these two films up. <laughs> the, the, the girl from Rio is a 1969 sp- uh, spy fi. That's a term I'd never heard before. Spy-fi? I like that. Yeah. Uh, film. Like, uh, what's uh, Diabolique? Is yeah. The Danger Diabolique. Danger Diabol- yeah. Diabolique, which was a, um, what's his name? Mario Bava film. Yeah. Weird. Yeah, I just, I always think of that. I think of like Mystery Science Theater or something, but it's like done by one of the masters, you know? Yeah. Uh, but this is directed by Jess Franco, who, while he certainly is one of the most prolific filmmakers of all time, I am just not a fan. I don't get it, Chris. <laughs> I have not I've a given fan. I've given Franco so many fair shakes. And some of his stuff is just out and out pornography. Oh yeah. Like how well over half of it. Yeah. Yeah. It, I have tried. Um you know, I think the first film I tried was uh uh well, is it called Count Dracula? It's just called Count Dracula. Okay. It's his Christopher Lee Dracula movie. That was made smack dab in the middle of the Hammer Dracula movies where he casts Christopher Lee as Dracula. Okay. Um, I mean, he and, made 173 films. Well, I've so. seen 
four of them. <laughs> I mean, there's only a few I've even heard of outside yeah. of the ones that are more widely spread, like the, so the you, awful Dr. Orloff. Well, you should Orloff. marathon them on uh, I am not. No, I did like awful Dr. Orloff. Did you? I have not seen it. I like I just, that one. I've just heard of it. So that one that one gets a pass. Okay. <laughs> one. <laughs> one pass. Next. We're going we're gonna to read all 175 titles. <laughs> we're not. Just, okay. <laughs> all right. So, um... This is a, it was a little confusing what the hell was going on at first with this thing, right? Cause it's like the hero is Jeff Sutton and he's like a handsome, like James Bond type, but like a little rougher around the edges who's showed up in Rio carrying $10 million, uh, supposedly in stolen money. Uh, he's been sent there specifically by some sort of spy agency. Uh, he checks into a hotel. Uh, he's pursued by various people who want this money that he is supposedly has stolen. Uh, there's a bunch of people who want him for his money or to kidnap him or to convince him to make a deal or whatever it is, but really nothing happens of any interest in this film until it gets really weird with like, Oh, there's an Island of nothing but women who are trained in the deadliest forms of, of combat. And, and they want to take over the world and kill all men with sci-fi weapons. Uh And I was like, wait, what? (laughs) Who like abduct him. And apparently he's actually there because he's looking for someone who's missing. It's all very convoluted but really so much of this is just devoted to the half naked woman or completely naked woman writhing around, which I don't have anything aesthetically against at all, except I came here to watch a movie, not to masturbate. So I don't really, I mean, I get that people, there's a lot of people who like the movies that combine their horror with lots of naked woman and their sci-fi with lots of naked woman. And I'm like, yeah, but the movie has to be good for that to work. Like Barbarella, I think is good. It's fun, (laughs) but this is not. I like to usually start with an open mind and determine whether or not I'm going to masturbate to it within the first couple of minutes. <laughs> okay. Um, the uh, yeah, it's nonsense. It's utter nonsense. And it's it has a, some, it's it a has sequel some, yeah, as well. It has some unintentional laughs in it, so it's you know, it's one of those. If you were seeing camp this with an audience of people, yeah, like a yeah, yeah, like a weird Wednesday type thing, you know? beer. Yeah, like I could see having kind of fun with it because it is just so ridiculous, but it would also just be awkward. There's lots of scenes you're not really laughing. It's just sex scenes. You're yeah. Like, okay. Again, not my thing. I get that there's a lot of people who really like Jess Franco. I can't personally figure it out. I think he's a total schlockmeister. Uh, but whatever. I don't really like trauma either. So, you know, that's just who I am. The cat is attacking the back of your head, isn't he? He's gently just, petting me. Just push him he off keeps, the couch. Keeps, it's fine. Extending his arm and petting the back of my head. <laughs> because I'm keeping it out of reach of his mouth where he wants to eat my hair. But yes, this is a sequel to The Million Eyes of Sumuru, which came out two years beforehand, which was all about more about this island of deadly women uh i don't know i'm never going to watch that i film. don't think us not seeing the first one affected uh whether or not we understood this one at all yeah i think it was it was going to be incomprehensible either way yeah. uh and it's out on 4k someone took the time yes. to frame by just, frame remaster just release this. everything on 4k <laughs> just everything just anything and everything <laughs> there, sure there's a new commentary recorded by critics troy howarth and nathaniel thompson uh, and then this also comes with a Blu-ray disc, uh, that features that as well. There's a new program, Rocking in Rio, with a critic author, uh, Stephen Thrower, who talks about the conception of it, uh, and Jess Franco's career. There's Rolling in Rio, which is an archival featurette with actress Shirley Eaton, who plays, uh, Sumitra, the evil leader of the evil woman. Um, uh, poster and still gallery, additional sort of scenes and trims, and then the one reason to own this, 
It comes with the Riff Tracks edition. Oh, that I didn't know. Yeah, uh, with Mike Nelson, Bill Corbett, and Kevin Murphy uh, riffing move. it. So I'm like, well, shit, if I'd realized that, I would have just watched that version. <laughs> I, I will. I wasn't going to keep this, but then I was like going, there's like, oh, shit, how did I miss that? Okay, now I got to keep this because I don't there's have a reason that. to rewatch it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the only reason to watch it, probably. Uh, uh, we are going to move again across the country, across the world, and talk about a movie called, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, Sair, S-E-I-R-E. This is from South Korea, a very recent 2021 horror film. Uh, a really weird little cover with like a ha- an apple that looks like it's rotten, but there's like a fetus in it. I can take this one, because I really like this. Okay, I did too. So, there is a concept in Korea, it's an old, like, outmoded concept, and I w- I've been pronouncing it Sere, and I don't know if that's how you say it either. I'm, who knows? They do. <laughs> um, but the concept is that for the first two weeks of a child's birth, you don't you stay at home, you don't go outside, you just stay with the baby for the first two weeks. And the father of the child receives a text message uh, f- from an ex that that his ex he gets it from an ex that his ex has passed away. So it's from the ex's phone that his ex has passed away. And he wants to attend the funeral, and the wife doesn't want him to attend the funeral because they're in Sari. And he decides to attend the funeral anyways, and supernatural bad things happen. <laughs> I, As the movie unfolds, you learn more and more about this past relationship, and I found it much more... I found it that I responded to it much better as like kind of a dark drama hmm. than a horror movie. It has horror elements, it has things in it that are sort of unsettling, but I thought it was way more satisfying as a very morose, very grim supernatural drama than as a quote unquote horror. Movie. Sure, I can see that. I mean, there's certainly like things that are tropes right out of horror that yeah. are in here, uh, but there's more stuff that has to do with the thriller. It feels like in many ways, like the whole thing. He goes to the funeral and he didn't realize she had a twin sister, which obviously would be awkward yeah <laughs> you know uncomfortable um yeah this is interesting it's twisty i feel like you really have to pay attention to keep up with it though because there are points i had to rewind it and go i feel like i missed something pertinent here yeah because it is a little complex but yeah i overall i thought this was good and deserved better than a bare bones dvd release it yeah it really deserves a blu-ray blu-ray release although there is a uh a there are streaming versions uh in a higher quality but it's but it is good it's really good uh the director here kang park was has been nominated for best international feature film at the zurich film festival as well as best film at the busan international film festival and it won the fapreski prize at the latter so this film is actually at least overseas pretty highly thought of here i don't know i think someone just dropped the ball on having any interest in marketing it to yeah, american it audiences got which is a shame because it's well worth your time, well worth seeing, as are many South Korean films. South Korea's got one of the most interesting film industries in the world right now. Uh, and they finally tr- crossed over and even took an Oscar. Jesus Christ. Yeah. <laughs> uh, then we've got going to all the way, we're like crossing the globe, like, like, uh, what was the name? San Diego, Carmen San Diego here, which also, weren't you always wondering, like, how busy are you that you're sending kids to do all your shit for you? I mean, aren't you the, like, the like government agent here like like if she's that bad of a master spy 
Why do you have children doing this? <laughs> I think it's you who suck it, at your because job. Because I don't know if you know this, Chris, but master spies are like ghosts. Only children can see them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that follows, actually. Uh, but yes, yeah, so we're going to England for Unman, Wittering, and oh, Zigo, which has got to be one of the worst titles for a film it's a I've ever It's a terrible title. Uh, for a film that I actually think is not half bad. I can take the synopsis on this one as well. That's okay. how much I, so the ones that like, you can tell I'm like all enthusiastic because like <laughs> the ones I really liked, I'm like, I remember all the plot details. <laughs> Meanwhile, Girl from Rio, I'm like, I don't remember what happens at all. There was some, <laughs> some shooting, some nudity. Oh man, the, uh, by the exotic way, locales. That, I love the, the shooting. They couldn't even put in like marks on the film to have like fu- uh, muzzle blasts. It's just people shaking their gun yeah. at people. <laughs> uh, so this particular movie opens with a a character you don't know who they are that gets thrown off of a cliff. And then a teacher arrives at a school. He's a brand new teacher. And what you discover is that his predecessor, that he has been hired to take over this class, that his predecessor was basically, the thought is that the predecessor had killed himself, that had fallen off the cliff. The students begin to tell him, a group of students, like bullies in the class, start to mess with him and say, we're the ones that killed that teacher. And for a small portion of the movie... That's sort of the tension, right? Is created as it's like him going, are they messing with me because I'm the new guy? Yeah. Like, are they just telling mm-hmm. me this because I, I'm fresh to the school mm-hmm. and they're just trying to get under my skin? Yeah. Or did they really kill somebody? And that's the and, central conceit as yeah. an audience member is asking yourself that question, yeah. you know, which will be revealed. Yeah. <laughs> Not on this show. Um, I thought that it, I was surprised. And again, I think it's the title. I'm surprised I'd never heard of this before. Yeah. I mean, uh, outside of the title, which again is just unmemorable and horrible. It's the name of the kids, by the way, if you're yeah. listening and going, like, what? I can't even, I can't rattle the title off is the yeah. problem. I know. What's the title? Unman, Unman Wittering, Wittering, and Zigo. And Zigo. It's terrible. I mean, come on. No <laughs> one thought we should change the title of this. And it even starred, like, had a pretty big star from the time, David Hemmings, who yeah. plays the, the new teacher. I knew him best from Deep Red, playing the lead character in that, but he's been in just a ton of stuff. ton of stuff. Uh, he was, a pretty big deal um even this was movie is very well known in england to the point that even their little britain did parodies of it oh the, wow the sketch comedy show uh and uh rowan atkinson did one at secret policeman's ball parodying it so it's really well known there but this is the first time i it's ever crossed my awareness and i'm really glad i saw it yeah. it is intimidating um it really wakes you up. You're just like, oh, what is the, this is not a plot I've seen before, yeah. <laughs> you know? And the way it plays out, it's got a really like fast moving third act. It does. Yeah. I, I think this was one of those ones that like, if you can seek out a copy of this, which has been released by Arrow, uh, it is going to be well worth your time. Make a good double feature with something like the Wicker Man. Cause yeah. this is 1971. So it's right around the same era. It's like has a different, a, a similar cinematography feel to it. Um, yeah, really, really good. And it does come with some extra features. Uh, critics Sean Hogan and Kim Newman do a commentary. There's a unruly education, which is an analysis of the film by Dr. Matthew Sweet. So not the musician. <laughs> Before you say anything, John, <laughs> you can sing a song if you want. Yeah, that's know. okay. Uh, there's unma- Unman Libstrob and Turhue plus Mrs. Ebony. <laughs> Which is a bunch of different actors talking about making the film. Uh, there's a radio play version of this that plays to stills from the, uh, the yeah, film. I think I read that it was based on a play and I was like, I'm not sure how you, 
I'm not sure how you do everything that's in the movie in a play. I'm kind of curious as to what was added. Yeah, and well, I don't just mean throwing people off of a cliff. <laughs> uh, there's stuff where I was like, "Is that in the play?" I, I could, I can kind of visualize it, especially with all the, you know, you get the whole crew people doing foley and what have you that you could pull it off. But you know, I mean, like there's a. Even with all the audio dramas that exist today, there was an art to the radio drama yeah. that existed back then that's been lost, you know? Yeah. <laughs> that we, if you've watched um, Killers of the Flower Moon, there's an interesting sort of metaphorical radio play callback they use for the epilogue of that film that was like, oh, yeah, I would, oh. I would love to have gone to see a performance like this. The only thing I've seen even faintly like that is the Jason Newlander, uh, the intergalactic nemesis here in Austin, which has toured around where he's doing something like that. Anyway, we're going to move on to another DVD-only release, Brightwood. This is a recent horror film, uh, a debut feature from director Dane Elkar that literally stars two people. <laughs> and it's this married couple who are going for a jog in the forest, and their, wedding, their, their marriage is over, basically. Like, she's just waiting to say the words, I want a divorce. And it looks like it's going to happen on this particular jogging trip. They, they don't really like each other, but he's still trying to argue that they should give it a try. Uh, she is, just wants to listen to her podcast on her iPods. And they find that they're trapped in the forest and that it just keeps looping back on itself. Everything, every time they try to leave, it just loops back. And there also appears to be someone mysterious in a hoodie that's stalking them. So this is a, I, it reminded me of something. Um, I, what was that movie with the, the guy from the, who played Xander on Buffy, the vampire slayer. It was like a sci-fi film where it was in a house and everybody, it was like sort of like, not time loopy, but parallel worlds oh, thing I, where it was like every, they kept having to deal with parallel versions of themselves. There was that movie called Coherence. Coherence, yeah, yeah. yeah. Kind of remind me a little bit of that, but this is much more bare bones and stripped down. And whereas I think this is a really interesting idea, and there's some parts, especially idea wise, I'm like, this is interesting. Like, I this is really cool. I really, really did not like the choice in the way that they made it end, and I wasn't overwhelmingly fond of either one of the actors. I just found them they're kind of over the top to the point of being kind of annoying. Yeah, it starts with them arguing, and you don't even get a feel for who they are yet before they're already like laying into each other and i found they're arguing because you have no point of reference and you haven't established a connection with the character i found they're arguing really difficult to sit through and at some point it picked up for me and i was like okay it's getting better and then it kind of got better as it went along yeah but man the first 45 40 minutes of this we're a we're a tough sit, mostly because I wanted them both to just shut up. Yeah, I was like, I hope this is actually a horror movie, so they both die horribly. Yeah, and soon. <laughs> but I mean, like I said, there once it gets going, there are some real interesting ideas, some interesting sort of camera trickery here. But in the end, it just felt like that's all they had was the idea, and they didn't really know how to make it, how to make the ending stick in an interesting way. I was like, oh, is that it? Okay. I mean, like, it was more like, oh, well, now we have to make this not a sci-fi film, but a horror film. And I was like, kind of liked it better when it was more of a sci-fi film. <laughs> it's, it, it is specifically to our listeners. We've referred to in the past film fest horror. Yeah. And that's what this is. It oh, is film 100%. Fest horror. One of those, like, with the right audience at the right film festival where this is, would be one of the better ones playing, <laughs> then maybe I could see it getting more of an audience yeah. there, more people liking it. But as it was, I think Brightwood was kind of a letdown. Uh, I did like much more another very film festival type film, Black Circle. 
Uh, and this is another one that mainly succeeds by the strength of its ideas. It certainly doesn't succeed by the strength of its budget, which is very small, and it often is reaching for more than what it can visually pull off. So it falls into a sort of um, psychotronic 60s type vibe in order to get across a lot of its sort of high concept ideas that are involved here. And, you know, this came out in 2018. It's a Mexican-Swedish production. Uh, I didn't realize it was that old. Yeah. Yeah. No, neither did I. I thought it was newer when I got it because it came packaged with something else that was newer. I was like, oh, this must be a new release. But it's this girl, Celeste, played by Felice Jankel. She's uh, recently lost her job, broke up with her boyfriend. She needs help. She goes to visit her sister, Isa, played by Erica um, Midfajal. I'm probably saying that wrong. I apologize. Um, her sibling seems to have all her shit together. She's got a great job, corner office. And she's like, I, but they obviously don't get along. But she's like, look, I got, you can have what I have. Like, you just need to take this record that and play it every night as you're going to sleep. It, it's about the concept of magnetism. It's like a type of hypnosis. And it like really took almost no time. And I was just, I, I got everything I ever wanted. I became the person I wanted to be. And she's like, whatever. But then she's like, okay, well, I'll, I'll try it. Even though it's like some old be- beat up record from the 1970s. Uh, and it sees immediate results, uh, positive results. But the problem is, is that apparently this whole, like I said, it's from much beforehand where this record came from. It was kind of, kind of tied into a sciencey, but cult, science-based cult that had was fucking with this sort of ver- new version of hypnotism that would literally separate your mind physically from the negative parts of yourself. But the problem is that negative parts of yourself, like I said, were physically being pulled out of your body. But the more you separated, took it out of yourself, the more it became a actual physical entity that wanted its life back. But the, the bad part of you. And that's a really cool, interesting concept, concept in the doppelganger genre yeah. of horror. I just feel like as it went along, it just, it's clear it's lack of money. Uh, and some of the actors are, are not up to snuff here are very, very low. Like, you know, they, not that great. <laughs> um, not everybody. I thought some people with the, both the sisters were not bad, but. It's a film that's well worth seeing. Uh, I, I, at the, the end, I was like, okay, I'm glad I saw that. I don't know if I'll ever revisit it, but it was interesting enough of a concept that, and, and I like the whole psychotronic thing, you know, like, like do the negative with colors that affect to, to give the idea of psychedelia or whatever. I like some of that stuff. And it's the thing that's used well here, but it's mainly used as a cover up for not having any money. They achieve their tone. So that's good. Like that's a positive. They, they nail the tone that they're going for. It felt like to me, and again, in my, in my memory, the impression that it made, it felt like to me that the latter half of the film was a lot of conversations about like, what are we going to do? Mm. And it was like ad nauseum. Like yeah. it was sort of like, well, we, we're going to try this and this. Okay. Well, let's try this. Okay. Well, what if this happens? Okay. And it's like, I felt like this, this after the setup, sort of like they don't, have a lot of places to take it after the setup. Um, and that seemed to be a challenge, but they, but again, they nail the tone and that's, that's mostly what the movie's going for anyways, is a kind of tone. So in that regard, Hey, success. So, yeah, no, I, I mean, I'm, I would 
not argue with someone who really loved this. Let me yeah. put it that way. Like I'm, I'm the person like this movie for me with the movie that I defend to the end of the earth is the endless, right? That's a movie I watch over and over again. It's super low budget. It's kind of amateurish acting, but, but it's very high concept, but I think it's executed about as well as you could do with that sort of thing. And I will, I've defended it many times against people who did not, who look at it the way I kind of look at this. Like, well, that was flawed. Um, so I would get it, but this is not 100% for me. It does come with a CD soundtrack, I guess, if that's a thing you need. Uh, commentary with the director. There's nine minute making of for the movie inside Black Circle. There's an extended chat interview with the actress Christina Lindbergh conducted by the director. It's almost an hour. There's a uh, 14 minutes of image gallery. There's a, and a 2017 short film from the director called Don't Open Your Eyes. So that's actually a relatively packed disc for like a tiny little film like this. Yeah. Uh, moving again to yet another country, we're going to France for a remake of a, for a remake slash requel of a Japanese film, One Cut of the Dead, and this one's right. just called Final Cut. We need to set some ground rules about how deep we can talk about this. Well, I think we both know the point. We don't want to talk any further. Okay. Yeah. When the when the yeah, I think it's hard to discuss because this movie in particular does something. If you've seen One Cut of the Dead. And you expect this to be a remake. I'm, I, I, I had been thinking about this for a while. Like, how do we discuss this without Spoiling busting it. it wide? Because the thing that I liked the most about it is a spoiler. Even removed from One Cut of the Dead. Even if you've seen One Cut of the Dead and you think you know what the spoiler is, this has a completely different spoiler mm. that I didn't expect. There's not a lot of differences between it and One Cut no. of the Dead. There is a little bit about it because it is, it's aware of the existence of one cut of well, the dead. Well, that was the thing I didn't know. Oh, that okay. was the thing well, that to they, me felt like a surprise. Oh, okay. I had no idea going in. I think that's on the back cover. Okay. I, <laughs> I had no idea going in. And okay. when it was revealed that it was specifically that, I was like, oh, wait, what? But they don't do much to play with no, that. No, it's not. Is the I don't want to sell it as good. I actually I, thought it was like weirdly bloated and inefficient compared to the first one yeah for no real good reason because it's above the line really slick basically this is a movie about uh, this is a movie about zombie movies mm -hmm. if i want to leave it as vague as possible both one cut of the dead and this film are movies about zombie movies one cut of the dead caught me completely off guard even after festival hype mm. i was like yeah that was fine and then, and I was like, oh, this is great. Yeah. That's the way everybody is. I, I always told people, you're going to be watching and be like, why is everyone raving about this yeah. really super low budget kind of dumb zombie movie? Yeah. And I'm like, trust me, just wait. Because when the, when the moment comes, you'll know it. And from then on, you're going to be in pure joy. And that whole big bit you sat through in the beginning will all have been worth it. So this one, because the first one exists... They go, let's get to the reveal quicker. Yeah. They get to the reveal quicker. They give the reveal a twist. And then it's interminable. Like, mm. it just keeps going and going and going with nothing really. I mean, like, stuff is happening. And, like, it's it's weird when you see a movie where it's like the acting is good and the dialogue doesn't suck. But it also just sort of, like, lays there in front of you. Like... It was, 
it was so odd at how how kind of again bloated is the best thing I can think of in regards to how how efficient and to the bone one cut of the dead is mm-hmm. versus how like navel gazing hmm. this one is. And it's by a relatively big name director. Yeah, the guy that did the artist. Yeah. That was something else where I was like, well, how are you doing this after the artist? Uh, like, I mean I don't know. Maybe <laughs> maybe Japanese films don't sell that well in France, but they were like, y'all need to see this. I, I'm unclear why anyone felt there was a good idea to remake this, which, like I said, despite that minor twist, they that could have been really interesting if you really made it the dominant paradigm here, that you're kind of playing with the same thing, but you're doing it very differently in reaction to that. But it almost never is comes up or is relevant. It's basically exactly what happens in One Cut of the Dead, yeah. just doesn't have that same sense of energy there's like one scene towards the end that involves like trying to get the last shot that i thought they pulled off a little differently here and i thought it was pretty well done but other than that i was like uh i mean i could if someone's like only had a copy of this and one cut of the dead was unavailable i'd be like by all means watch this what's the length of one cut because i bet one cut runs under I bet one cut is under an hour and a half, and this thing runs at two hours. Yeah, it's a hun- this is 111 minutes. One cut of the dead is, yeah, it's 95 minutes. Oh, okay. Well, there so. you go. That, that's significantly shorter. And there's, yeah, there's, I, I don't know why you would watch this if you had already seen one cut of the dead. I'm telling you now, don't bother. Uh, if you, if you happen to see this, that this is on your streaming service and you haven't seen one cut of the dead, you'd probably enjoy it quite a bit, actually. But, yeah, this is not as good as the, the as, as the original uh, Japanese one, which was and doesn't was provide a, enough new to those who've already seen it. Which was a festival smash hit across the world. Everywhere yeah. it played, people lost their minds over it, and as well they should have. Uh, there is a twenty minute featurette here. Uh, they talk about uh, adapting the film, which you know, again, more time should have been spent on the making it an actual sequel rather than just copying it, but whatever. Uh, then we're going to go back to America for a 4K re-release of one of the all-time great horror films. Some would even call it the greatest horror film, The Exorcist from 1973. Uh, one of the most troubled horror franchises, though, that just has had zero success, uh, even when it was good. Like, Exorcist 3, I think, is quite good. good. Uh, I think the Exorcist television show was quite good. good. C- canceled after two seasons. All the other movies, not good. I have not seen the new one yet, but I'm assured it is not good. Uh, I'm color me unsurprised. <laughs> As not a gigantic fan of David Gordon Green's other horror output, this did not shock me at all. That that is not good either. Um, it looked like uh, the aliens version of Exorcist, where it's like now there's more little girls possessed by devils. Right? Where it's like, wait, I, that works for Alien to be like, oh, Alien. But now there's aliens. Well, this was like Reagan, <laughs> Reagan's. <laughs> when, when I saw when I uh, saw the line that they gave Ellen Burstyn, who's returning as her character from yeah. The Exorcist, where she's like, "Why wouldn't they let you in the room with the exorcism?" Probably because of the patriarchy. I was like, "Someone wrote that," <laughs> and it got to the end of the film. Anyway, this original still is a classic. I I was I'm always happy to rewatch it, especially in October, which I did. I, like, I don't get people who don't like it. Even yeah. if even if you are like, oh, it wasn't scary, fine, great, it didn't scare you, fine, <laughs> like that's fine. But there is an in, there is a drama going on about a priest that's losing his faith, and he 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 beca- he gets face to face with 
evil as an evident real thing and how does that challenge his faith yeah and that drama is so good that i don't know how people are just like exorcist sucks it's incredibly well written it's incredibly well shot it's incredibly well acted and it had i mean i realize that sometimes you need to contextualize scenes stuff in horror movies based on their time when they've been copied a billion times but honestly Some of the stuff in here still is so much more scary to me than in any other Exorcist can, film I've seen. Can you seen. even imagine living... It was 71? Is, that, is this 71? Uh, I believe it is. I'm like, your movies... You, so you're 73. A, like, you're a horror fan, right? And you're like, what's playing at the cinema? And you have, like, the sixth freaking Peter Cushing Frankenstein movie? <laughs> yeah. Or The Exorcist <laughs> It's like, I can't imagine, and it did blow audiences' minds back then. Oh, yeah. I have to think about, like, what horror movies were out. Vincent Price, Christopher Lee, (laughs) Peter Cushing, I love them. But this is like the last gasp, dying days of the monster movie, Mm -hmm. like old castles and shit like that. And you have The Exorcist come out, which is so of the moment in regards to it feels modern it feels like it could be happening in your neighbor's house like right now yeah and adult sophisticated characters and no castles and no draculas yeah. <laughs> and it's just i well, can't imagine what that would have been like well, i can't think of a i can't think of anything now that would have carried the impact of the exorcist exorcist release then in regards to how different an offering it was what people were expecting a horror movie. Well, it was so very controversial too, because of how different it was and how shocking it was by the standards then, which were so much more tame before that. Uh, Many critics like dogpiled on it, hating it, calling it like, this is just basically like anti-Catholic pornography. I mean, you have to remember as well back then it was considered in rather bad taste to, I don't know, maybe be anti-religion uh, on any level. And I was like, how is this movie anti-religion? It's still a shocking exactly? language. Uh, it shocking has shocking moments. language, yeah. very shocking moments. I mean, the fuck me Jesus scene alone. Yeah. You know, but I, I I think it's excellent. I still think the director's cut is the version to see here because the spider walk is one of the creepiest scenes in any horror movie ever. There's a lot of backlash against that nowadays. Really? Yeah, I was seeing the, the, the quote-unquote discourse about how a lot of people wish that that never would have been reincluded and that oh. sort of stuff. And I was like, I saw it the first time that way, and I that made my hair stand up. Like, yeah, it was taken out because they said it was too scary. Yeah, and I agree, it's really scary. I could see that it was like this movie already had audiences losing their minds. That maybe a step too far for them. I don't see why anyone would. Okay, anyway, but. This movie turns 50 this year, and Warner Brothers has put out a brand new transfer, 2160p HDR transfer, dual audio tracks, on both versions of the film in this set, which is really nice. You almost never see that. It's usually yeah. just one of them has got the, the brand new upgrade, but they upgraded both versions here. Now, there is no Blu-ray copy included here. So, uh, and no old extras. There's been another film that's gotten released, re-released so many times. Uh, so there's just a few pieces from Legacy, uh, previous releases. But really, if you have another version of this that's packed, which there are many releases packed with bonus features, this is something you get in addition to having that earlier <laughs> Blu-ray copy of it. If you want to keep all that stuff. Um, not a great art for the cover either i wish they would stop doing these sort of just a photograph covers like still from the the movies like the poster art thing for movies was so big 
why why are you guys not just paying one of these guys for their art for these releases that I would much rather have than this just crap crappy almost kind of shaky looking still from the movie uh, yeah. on the cover it's just not real pretty uh, I don't get it but yeah this is in terms of the way it looks and the way it sounds this is the ultimate edition available um there's an introduction by William Friedkin and uh Two different com- uh, commentaries on the theatrical cut, uh, the one with director William Friedkin, one with the writer William Peter Blatty, who himself went on to uh, write and direct Exodus 3, the only other movie that's worth seeing in the series, although it's very different feel from this one, with George C. Scott taking over the role of the cop that, that uh, is a ma- relatively major character in The Exorcist. Yeah. Uh, and then... The uh, extended director's cut has a different commentary with director w- William Friedkin on it. And, I, you know, I mean, if you don't, if you've never seen this, uh, honestly, I'm kind of shocked. Like, what's keeping you from seeing <laughs> this? This is a masterpiece of horror. But, yeah, I mean, this isn't a bad way to see it for the first time. Another 4K re-release that's out now is Tenebrae, based uh, the Dario Argento film. Now, a lot of people think Argento, they just think Suspiria, and they assume that all his movies were that way. Actually, Suspiria was, was odd for him at this point. He was more known as a, a traditional giallo director who was doing, you know, killer with black gloves, killing off people. They may have occult leanings, but there was no actual supernatural type stuff. And Tenebrae was a, a film, 1982, that is more of, of that type of thing. It's a twisty murder mystery with a uh, American author, Peter Neal, uh, who uh, has come to Italy, to, uh, to Rome, to promote his latest murder mystery novel, and he gets tied up in a real-life serial killer a hunt that's going on there uh, because they're like the detectives like, well, you seem to be really good at these mysteries. Maybe we could get your help. And you've got John Saxon uh, as his agent and Daria, Daria Nicolodi, his real life, uh, Argento's real life wife uh, as his assistant. Um, and I think this is the actual, when we actually get to the reveal at the end, it's a weird, you couldn't possibly have figured it out on your own twist, but it's an interesting one. I've never seen this type of twist before. It's like, well, that's a new one. Uh, I mean, plausible, but, you know, still. Yeah. With, uh, I think the effects here are among some of the best we've seen in Argento stuff, if not a little more pulled back than in stuff like Suspiria or something, but still very effective. There's a very famous scene with a woman whose arm gets cut off with an axe through a window against a white kitchen wall that's just much discussed, much shown scene. Um, I, I genuinely love Tenebrae. I think it's a great movie. It's got a score that's among the best scores for for Italian films done by Claudio Simonetti and uh, three of the other members of Goblin, who famously did deep, probably best known for deep the scores to Deep Red and uh, Suspiria. But this is one of those scores is right up there. It's really, really, really great. Uh, I was really pleased to get a 4K copy of this. Um. I, if you are an Italian horror fan at all, I kind of call this like a must-watch, really. And this is Synapse Films uh, making a 2160p presentation with Dolby Vision, sourced from the original Cameron Negative. And I have the previous Blu-ray edition, and this is significantly better. Yeah. Um, yeah. What, what, is this your I'd first never, time seeing it? I've never seen it before. I thought it was okay, uh, and then loved the end. So that's where I felt on it. It's like, and especially coming off a of phenomenon where it's like, I had gotten to the point kind of where I'm just like, I haven't seen enough of Argento stuff to be mm-hmm. honest. And I was like, yeah. And, and, and it ends up happening sometimes like a lot of stuff. If they're esteemed to a certain point, 
Just Franco. <clears throat> uh, yeah. That uh, their stuff is sort of all regarded as great, whether it's great or not. True. And uh, I wouldn't say I was necessarily reluctant. I was hoping. I was hoping for something that would that I would like. I was not going like, please don't be another <laughs> phenomenon. Yeah, because which, which I didn't hate phenomenon, but it's like it's, it's one so of the, goofy. People always put it out there as if it's one of his best films, it's and so it's not silly. When we, when we talked about it, I agreed with you. I was like, I yeah. think this is one of his lesser movies that has the advan- some real advantages of it, like like having Donald Pleasance and Jennifer Connelly and kind of iconic parts for both of them and some neat scenes. But ultimately, it's yeah, ultimately it's really goofy in that way that the goofiest '80s horror films could yeah. be at points. Uh, this I I was it's like I was kind of mildly engaged, and I'm like, all right, you know, he's going around and. Uh, tr- you know, they're trying to figure out who could be doing this. Uh, you know, at first they think it's him because the murders match the murders in his books. And then he's like, well, no, I, you know, I just got here. And they're like, great. Well, yeah, give us a hand with this. Uh, and, and again, like, I thought the ending was really visceral, really strong. Um, there's all, there's a actress in particular at the end who screams nonstop. Yeah. Uh, which is like, it's kind of a choice, but it worked. Um, yeah, I, uh, I ended up really liking this. Yeah. This this helped uh, restore Argento a little bit. My eyes coming off of uh, coming off of. Next, we have to give you Bird with the Crystal Plumage. Then you know, I need to see Opera too. Opera's really good as well. I just had my my general manager at we work. We did Crystal was, Plumage on the show. Did we? Did you? Yeah. Did you like that one? Right? I liked it pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, opera's really good. Uh, my general manager work just watched that for the first time and was telling me, oh my god, I loved it. And he's seen very little Argento himself. So, Anyway, this does come with uh, audio commentary by authors and critics Alan Jones and Kim Newman. There's another audio commentary by Argento expert Thomas Ro- Rostock. There's an audio commentary by Maitland McDonough, author of Broken Mi- Mirrors, Broken Minds, The Dark Dreams of Dario Argento. The real number one thing to have on this is Yellow Fever, The Rise Involved, The Giallo, which is a feature-length documentary and it's excellent. Really, really, really worth watching, and it's a really educational piece about learning how did this happen? Where did it come from? How did it evolve? When did it end? And the honest truth is it didn't. It just... America started doing more giallo than Italy did. Yeah. Uh, I, I was talking about this with someone the other day. Like, There's so many American films in the uh, late 70s, early 80s that are just directly doing giallo. Oh, when like, we did... Uh, like Eyes of War I, Mars. I was say, when we did Eyes of War of Mars on the show, you and I, it, <laughs> that was what we both noticed. Or Blowout yeah. with the John Travolta. Volta, I mean, yeah. total Giallo film, right? I mean, there was so there was um, the first like three Brian De Palma movies, yeah. you know, like Body Double and uh, what's the what's the one in the Dress to Kill? Total Dress Giallo kill. movies. Anyway, uh, being the villain, a new interview with actor John Steiner, Out of the Shadows, an archival interview with Maitland McDonough, Voices of the Unsane, which this was marketed in America originally as Unsane. Uh, so if you ever heard of that movie and went, I wonder whatever happened to that. Well, they started calling it by its original name, Tenebrae. <laughs> uh, archival featurette with interviews with writer-director Dario Argento, Dario Nicolotti, Eva Robbins, a cinematographer, the composer and assistant director, who was Lamberto Bava, who w- went on to direct Demons, one of my very, very, very favorite Italian horror films. Uh, Screaming Queen, an archival interview with Dario Nicolotti. The Unsane World of Tenebrae, an archival interview with Dario Argento. Interview with Claudio Simonetti. Archival introduction by uh, by uh, Dario Nicolotti. Uh, 
versions of the trailer from different countries, an alternate opening credit sequence. I mean, this thing is packed with stuff. It is a solid, solid release, uh, and definitely one of the best releases of an Argento film I've yet to see. But we're going to move back to America and talk about a film I've been wanting to see forever uh, called Hardcore. And this is written and directed by Paul Schrader, starring George C. Scott, uh, Peter Boyle, Dick Sargent, and Susan Hubley. And it's one of those films that was very controversial when it was released. I mean, she, look at the title. You know, <laughs> look, and yes, it is in fact about hardcore sex, but it is not a hardcore sex movie. It is follows a conservative Midwestern businessman played by George C. Scott, whose teenage daughter goes missing, and he hires a, uh, a private detective, a sleazy private detective by Peter Boyle to help him, but he's not of much help. So he's like, fine, I'm going to go out there myself and track her down and and gradually learns that he can't go in there as her dad. He has to pose to be someone in the porn industry or no one will talk to him. And he kind of like going through the the nastiest recesses of the porn industry. And I actually found this really gripping and like disturbing and effective. John, I have, you have their I disagree with you, Chris. I have face. opinions about this movie. Okay. I thought this movie, and I, I almost don't want to know if Paul Schrader found it funny. I found a lot of this movie really funny. <laughs> Dark, <coughs> bleak, black humor. Oh, he, and he's my certainly deal meant to is like that. is like this idea that's driven by I think that I think for me, much like on my last episode that the uh, shark biting the dick on the graffiti was like yeah. my Rosetta Stone for <laughs> for unlocking uh, after hours. Yeah. I think this for me is the Calvinism, this idea that everything is going to happen. That's going to happen. Like you cannot control it. It's going to happen. And this idea that, that white male fathers have that they can protect their daughters from sex. I think the underlying thing from Schrader here is sort of, you can't, it's destined to happen. Yeah. And all of this energy that you're expending and all of this rigmarole that he goes through and he, he he's constantly like accosting people as if they would know who his daughter is. <laughs> right. I found so darkly amusing because I think my mindset has changed. And I think that when I was younger, if I would have seen this when I was like 21 or 22, I would have been like, oh man, it's super effed up. And she's like, like he's trying to save her. And I would have really seen him as like very heroic. But even in the end, her, her resoluteness is just sort of like, it's not even that squalid. It's just sort of like, no, this is like what I'm doing. Yeah. This is fine. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm kind of like, when I'm watching it, I'm kind of, I think I've gotten way more progressive and way more <laughs> liberal with it where I'm like, honestly, Men and I'm about to burn the show down. <laughs> How much you empathize with George C. Scott should be a reflection of your own toxic masculinity. No, that's fair. How deep you go, oh man, I feel really, really bad for him. Stop and think about for a second. I think that was Paul Schrader's intent. Yeah, and I hope that's his intent. I don't want to find out that it's not. Well, I, mean, I loved this. With the ending, I can't think of any other yeah. intent he would have had. I mm -hmm. loved this, but I had never heard that it was... I'd never heard I I've done very little reading about it other than the times that I've heard about this movie have been presented from the point of view of 
could you imagine as a father right. if this happened? So it's been presented to me as like this deeply disturbing idea within this movie of like, what if you found out this happened to your daughter? But I, and, and again, on the surface, like, yeah, that sounds like, oh my God, yeah, I would never want my daughter to go through like abuse and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you watch the movie and it's really like, well, one, it's not really it's not really shown that she's necessarily like abused or anything like that. And then two, again, the Calvinism to me is so key to the text of the film, not to sound too like (laughs) film philosophy about it, but I think the Calvinism, again, that idea that it's all preordained. Yeah. Cal there. So in the film, in the context of the film, the family itself are staunch Calvinists. And for those listening, Calvinists believe that they're, Everything is preordained by God. So no matter what you're going through in life, that was God's plan. Doesn't matter. Even if you even the illusion of free will is because God planned for you to make that decision. Right. I just I think that's key to unlocking this whole I, thing. It's 100% going agree. to happen. Dads, your daughters are gonna have and sex. The irony of him and being unwilling to accept yeah. that. And and it's and it's told through porn because it's the only way to make that really it's the only way to punch that message home is like, what if she was in porn? Yeah. It's like, it's a lot, it's too soft if it's just, what if your daughter met a nice guy? Yeah. You can't sell that idea the same way. It doesn't work the same. You have to sell it as, you have to, she you went have to, to, you have to make the audience, because we all have different thoughts about just sex with romantic partners. Mm-hmm. You have to create a ground zero for the audience to almost like, where you cast the widest net for disgust in order to drive the point home that, yes, your daughters are going to have sex. I agree. To make with everybody you. face those thoughts. I agree with everything you're saying. And Loved I think it. there is Loved it. comedy Loved now hardcore. that's not as present as much as it was then because the, just because of the, the sleazy dated, datedness of yeah. all the sex stuff, you yeah. know, you're just like, like fast as slick talking. Well, it's, pimps yeah. And, it's still very you know, lurid. I don't yeah. not, I don't want to live in this world, no. but it's, but, I just there was just something that I found so amusing by it during most of its runtime. I I really liked this movie a lot. Uh, this does come with a restored U.S. trailer. There's uh, two commentaries: one with Paul Schrader from 2016, and uh, archival one with uh, three film critics. And it's got a reversible cover with vintage poster art. Kind of wish it had more. This feels like one it would have been interesting to have like a Criterion type release too, with a lot more in depth thoughts about it. But it is what it is. Uh, one of the best films I thought that I saw in this week's stack was Three Days of the Condor. One of those films always oh. been on my, I should have seen this by now. Well, like a really good slice of just like, just like American, like broad, like they don't make them like this anymore. People always say, they don't yeah. make them like this anymore. This is like, a, the, in the 70s, this would have been like a total mainstream yeah. hit movie. And it was. A, a broadly appealing, a yeah. little bit of romance, this sexy was, actors. This like, film was such a big deal that the Russian government actually created their own spy division mirroring the totally made-up spy division in this movie because they assumed, well, America must, must be doing this, so we better get our own. Because uh, everybody saw this movie, partially because Sidney Pollack, who directed it, was a big deal in 1975, and it starred, at that point, the most beautiful man in the world, Robert Robert Redford, uh, who's getting up here getting romantic with Faye Dunaway, one of the most beautiful women in the world at this point. This was a big deal, and uh, I believe it was... 
who's the, I'm trying to remember, uh, the, uh, it's based on the novel Six Days of the Condor, which was very popular as well and had come out a year beforehand. Uh, most of it's in New York City and Washington, D.C., where Robert Redford's a kind of, he's, he's not a spy spy. He like works in the secret CIA, like, a non-assuming house that is basically he's just a researcher and the it's like hidden codes and stuff and books that he's looking for um but you know he just reads all day and he's kind of even for there he's considered kind of a he's kind of a maverick because he doesn't do exactly what he's told because it's stupid who's gonna fucking know knows about us no one gives a shit about us but he comes back from lunch and discovers everyone has been murdered in his office and now they're coming for him so he's on the run trying to figure out who did this how he can get away from them. I, the only thing in here that strikes as awkward as all is that when he meets Faye Dunaway, it's as a, a hostage. He meets, yeah. he takes her hostage. And then, of course, eventually they end up having sex and fall in love. But the transfer never really works. You're just like, how did we go from two seconds ago her going like, yeah, yeah, the only reason I'm doing anything you say is because you're, you know, I have no choice. You have the gun to them tenderly making love right after that and i was like and now they get along famously and i'm like what yeah. <laughs> that sequence doesn't work for me but other than that i this is really exciting it has lots of twists and turns it's just a fun spy movie and redford just is killing it here alan moore ripped it off for what watchman i feel mm-hmm. like the end of the, the last pages of watchman are like exactly the same as the mm, I can kind as of the that. end of uh three days of the condor you know, minus the superheroes yeah <laughs> Uh, so you agree with me? This is one of those like this oh, is really a, kind of a must see. Yeah, I'd like to watch era. it again. Yeah, yeah, I will, I, I'm I'm going to eventually get around to watching that one again. Yeah. Uh, so, so yes, this is now available on uh, 4K uh, Blu-ray, um, and yeah, I, I I'm I'm mad at myself. It took me this long to watch this. Yeah, because uh, I I I think I kind of thought I had watched. I it thought at some it was point. different than what it was. Yeah. actually was. Me I too. thought it was going to be drier. Yes, uh, and it wasn't. Also, there's a, just there's a ton of recognizable character actors in this. Oh yeah, like yeah. like Cliff a Robertson. murderer's row yeah. of recognizable character actors. This was way more, uh, if I can use the word pulpy. It was a little more pulpy than I expected it to be. I thought it was going to be a drier affair. I thought it was going to be closer to like. Like a '70s version of like Tinker Taylor. Yeah, that's and what I thought too. It was way more uh, blockbustery for that time period. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. Um, it the 4K comes with a uh, two different commentaries, one by director Sidney Pollock, uh, where he talks about the making of it, and then uh, second one, a new commentary recorded by two critics. Uh, the Blu-ray has those, and also a archival documentary about with Sidney Pollock talking about his career. Uh, one with Robert Redford talking about being involved with this. Uh, and then a trailer, so pretty solid set to a very solid film that everybody should see. Uh, we are going to go to Fra- back to France again for Borsalino. Back to France. <laughs> but don't worry, I, I thought this was much better than Final Cut. Okay. Uh, Borsalino is a 1970 French gangster film directed by Jacques Deray and starring two of the biggest male stars in at that point in the world, uh, Jean-Paul Belmondo and Alain Delon, who are often thought of as two of the biggest heartthrobs in the world. Um, certainly Alain Delon is like, he's so good looking you can barely stand to look at him. You're just, Jesus Christ, no one was ever that good looking. Yeah. Uh, Belmondo is more like, that's sort of like, wisecracking like like he's he's not he's like the Humphrey Bogart type of good looking you're like oh you're not traditionally good looking but you've got personality to make up for it in spades 
and it's based loosely on real guys who were two gangsters who started off sort of fighting over the same woman and then started respecting each other and became best friends and got involved with basically trying to take over the entire crime syndicate uh, in in Marseille in, in the 1930s. And honestly, why this works is because these two guys are great together. They're just so much fun at playing off each other. I'm like, how have I never heard of this movie? I, I thought this was kind of a pure delight. Yeah, it was... Uh it's like a kind of loose um it's got like a kind of a charm to it uh kind of a loose energy kind of a almost like a hangout with gangsters yeah um the only thing that just about torpedoes this movie for me chris is the score hmm. it's, oh, it's like goofy, this yeah. it's like this looping ragtime piano like chinka 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 that just like goes over and over and over and over across all the scenes no matter the tone of the scene no matter what's taking place (laughs) the score was brutal i don't disagree yeah it was a lot and it it fit the tone of the film but did it have to keep it up Sometimes. for the whole movie um i honestly this reminded me of like butch cassidy and the sundance kid yeah, or something like yeah. that it had that kind of feel to it yeah. uh especially with their camaraderie uh although there's probably a lot more in this that is reminiscent of bonnie and clyde but uh so i'm told but i've never seen bonnie and clyde that's still on my bucket list of films i need to watch that i should have watched by now yeah um but yeah i Really enjoyable. If you're not familiar with either one of these actors, but you have watched some French films, if you don't know them by name, then if you watched any films from the, the 60s, 70s, and 80s, you've seen them in something. They both were the leading stars of their era. Uh, and this is one of the most fun films I've seen with either one of them, quite frankly. There are a bunch of extra features, an audio commentary by Josh Nelson, Dressing Down, which addresses the look of the film, which is... Not only very cool, but this was at this period of time when the 30s were coming back into fashion. Everyone was like, there's a lot of movies set in the 30s. And so Hollywood was sort of, and, and modern culture was sort of aping those looks. So yeah. people were like really into stuff like this. Uh, the music of Borsellino, sorry. Uh, uh, Claude Bowling is the guy you got to like okay. target there. Uh, Le Ma- Le Ma- Magnifique Belmondo, archival piece, uh, looking over Jean-Paul Belmondo's career, which uh, I guess was done for French television, and then the trailer, an image gallery. But yeah, it's a minor Arrow release, but probably because I know I had never heard of this. Most Americans probably never heard of this outside of people who specialize in French cinema. But yeah, really, really fun. Good times. I think coincidentally, and you could, don't quote me on this, but I think coincidentally, it Paramount had a string of bombs in the early 70s mm-hmm. that included this and uh, in America, in America, not in France. Right. Uh, they released it over here and it bombed. Paramount had that, and I think they did Unman as well. Unman, really? Uh, well, and I, can, I can tell you what, we're all, what went wrong with that release. I can tell you right now what went wrong with that. So, it was, so I, think, I think I read somewhere that, just coincidentally, that both movies were in that string of duds that uh, Paramount released. Fair enough. All right, we'll get to another Arrow re-release, but this one was one you've almost certainly heard of, which is the 1985 sci-fi fantasy comedy film Weird Science, that when it came out, was just for like a year, was my favorite film. Because, John, I was 15 years old, and Kelly LeBrock made my dick hard. <laughs> yeah. She was one of the most beautiful women acting at that point. Uh, she was literally every 15-year-old's dream girl, um, it was a 
it was John Hughes, who was one of the biggest directors in the world right then. You know, if it was a John Hughes movie and you're 15 years old, you were going to see it. You know, end of story. And this was, I was really into absurdism and Monty Python and stuff. And this was the first film he'd done that was really, really leaning into that type of humor. Yeah. It was like, wow, this is surreal. Uh, and really, by today's standards, wildly inappropriate on multiple levels. I think that the movie does a good job, though. So if you've never seen Weird Science, it's about two teenage boys that create a living a woman from a nudie magazine. Yeah, uh, using their, their 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 Apple IIe computer yeah. and a bunch of uh, pictures and 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 you know what passed for high tech computers at that point. So I, no digging up body parts or anything yeah, like that. I think it's longevity and the fact that it's not it hasn't been obliterated out of existence. <laughs> is I think it's got a couple things going for it. Well, there's a, it's got a hood. weird sort of innocence yeah. to it. So there's a whole like dog chasing a car, what are you going to do with it when you get it kind of a thing going on, where it's yeah. like, yeah, they talk a big game, and then they make her, and none of them can do anything with her. Yeah, In fact, when paralyzed. she's like, let's go get naked and shower, they're like standing there dressed, because they're just like, we, they're frozen. Yeah. So there's that aspect, which helps. And then there's also this idea that she decides, okay... These are good kids, but they're horny. I'm going to help them become better men. Yeah. And so there's that driver as well, which is like... And that even... And it's, and it's, it's thin. I don't want to oversell yeah. it. It's well, very thin. But I think those two ingredients are just enough to keep this from being thought of in poisonous terms. Well, it's even though she's like, you, you made me, you control me, yeah. right? The truth is they don't control her at all. No. I mean, she is absolutely the one with all the power in this relationship and yeah. like there's no point where you feel like she's unwilling or being used in a way that feels really that uncomfortable um and when this gets into the third act of just total surrealism the big party where they're throwing that involves bill paxton turning into a giant toad person yeah. and and nuclear missiles coming up through their house we don't stand for baloney <laughs> he doesn't you know he never stands for baloney <laughs> <laughs> the grandparents are they dead no they're happy yeah. uh i think this movie is still fucking hysterical it just cracks me up every time i watch it and this is the first time i ever watched the director's cut well not director's cut the added it's, scenes yeah it's weird right you never even knew so those, many times and it's like oh look at this never even knew that these scenes existed because yeah. i have an earlier edition of this that doesn't even have this as deleted scenes yeah. these scenes here and i'm like where did these come from so what it is is the director's cut is not grandly different, but you get more at the beginning where they're just kind of having a sleepover and hanging out and they're watching Frankenstein movies and they're sort of having like on and off conversations about Frankenstein. Yeah. And that's what leads them to this idea. Yeah. And they kind of get rid of all that rigmarole in the theatrical cut. It's just, they kind of skip straight to, okay, they're spending the night together and they get this idea while they're, while they're hanging out. They don't do the whole, they're kind of bored, right? Like during the during yeah. the stuff that's been cut, like they're sort of looking for stuff to do, and Frankenstein just happens to be on, and that inspires this whole other thread, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, this is not a complicated movie. It's just its humor isn't for everyone, but it was sure for me, right? Yeah. You know, I was really into Kelly LeBrock, and I really liked Anthony Michael Hall, the guy who plays Gary in this. Uh, the the or I'm sorry, Wyatt, who is the other boy here. Um, my goodness, what was his name? Elon 
It's Elon something. something. Elon Mitchell Smith. Mitchell Smith. He was a he was a teacher here in town for a while. Yeah. Uh, he was, uh, and he used to start his classes he famously. Medieval studies. Yeah. Right? yeah. He used to start his classes by saying, "Okay, so let's just get this out of the way." Yes, I was Wyatt in Weird Science. Uh, there's also I forget the name of the other movie. He was in a movie that was a pseudo spinoff of Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Oh, Wildlife. We yeah, did that the on the show. Yeah. yeah. Now he was kind of one of the lead stars in that, but he didn't do a lot else beside those two movies. There's yeah. A few things, but. He retired rather quickly. But you've also got Robert Downey Jr. in a very young role here, who's quite funny as one of the two bullies, him and Robert Rustler, uh, who was also the star of the 1986 skateboarding cult classic Thrashin'. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah, I... It's one of these movies that I, because of my childhood love for it, I will always rewatch it when given an opportunity. And it was neat to see the few added scenes, although none of them are adding a huge amount to it. It was kind of like, oh, I filled it, it was, out a little it was bit more. Cool to, it was yeah. cool to see parts of a movie that you've seen a thousand times that yeah. you've never seen before. And now this is out on 4K. This is the first version of 4K of it, um, which is uh, put out by Arrow. Uh, and uh, it's got a few extra features here. It's got, like I said, the extended version is only about 2 minutes and 38 seconds longer, but the theatrical version is available for here as well, as is an edited-for-television version. Yeah, um, that's one I've probably seen the most, actually. <laughs> there's a, sp- a split-scene comparison uh, that's an edited-for-television version menu that's side-by-side comparison to how the sensors changed things. Uh, there's the separate just additional scenes, there's casting weird science, which is actually fun, talking with the casting director, how they picked everybody and what impressed them about them. Um, there's Dino the Greek, John Kapalos, who was just a character actor who was in everything back then, uh, <laughs> who's, who's quite he's, funny. He's the guy from Breakfast Club, I am the yeah. eyes and ears of this institution. He's, he's the right, janitor. The janitor, yeah. yeah. Uh, and he, this is a brand new interview with him. There's a Chet Happens with Craig Reardon, who was the film's makeup effects creator, who turned... Uh, turned Bill Paxton into the giant toad monster person. Fantasy and Microtrips with Chris Lebenzon is the film's editor. Ira Newborn did the score, which, by the way, this was one of my favorite records uh, as well, because every song on it was a total banger. You know, especially, like, this is the first time I ever heard Killing Joke with the song 80s, which is, you know, ubiquitous now. But that was a big one with... um, the title song by Oingo Boingo, Weird Science. You know, there's so much good stuff on it. Uh, it's Alive, Resurrecting Weird Science, archival featurette produced for the film's DVD release in 2008. There's a bunch of trailers, TV spots, radio shots, image galleries. But yeah, this is a solid release of a classic comedy movie. Now we're going to go to something that was not a classic movie. Although if you laugh at this, it's probably because it's laughable, which is the 2023 The Flash. John, I know that you can be kinder sometimes towards these... DC releases of live action movies than I am. Um, I really found myself falling out of even like with this within 15 minutes of it starting. And by the end, I was just miserable. I just really disliked almost everything about this film. And you think the one thing that I would have been like, but that was cool. And even people who hate on the rest of it say, but that was cool. Is the Michael Keaton returning as Batman, even though he's clearly not, the same Batman from the Michael, from his original Batman films, because Gotham City ain't like that for one thing, and he's just not the same. I don't. He no, he feels like it's another parallel universe version of Batman or yeah. something, and he's just kind of sad and looks like he doesn't want to be there. I didn't want him to be there. I felt awkward watching it. I mean, like we made Birdman. Why did this have to happen? You know, um, I I really can't think of very much that I liked about this at all. 
uh, including Supergirl, which I was so excited for. And then I thought she, they give her nothing to do and she has very little personality and she's not interesting. So what was that for? <laughs> yeah. Um, Barry Allen, who is played by the, an actor who should not be given any more work anymore, Ezra Miller, because he's a total nutcase and a dangerous person. He's playing like the Flash as a really autistic talk a mile a minute guy. And then there's scenes where it's him and him, like as if one wasn't annoying enough. Now I got to have two of them interacting with each other on screen. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I really it's hate this. a really this. dumb one and a really smart one. I guess. There's really bad special effects. Yeah. Oh, my God. Really, really bad special effects. Unbelievably bad special I, effects. I think I told you about this when it came out theatrically, which is like the sleight of hand of special effects is if you're going to have like... There's times where they have both berries on screen, a CG berry. They don't even do the old school parent trap split screen, which would have looked a thousand times better. Instead, they decide to put them side by side with one of them being completely computer-generated, yeah, which not only makes the computer-generated one stand out as being phony, they also give the computer one dialogue while the real one stands there and doesn't say anything, which to me was baffling. Yes. I was like, how you're, you're messing up your own magic trick. Like, the, the, the real one should be the talking one because your eyes are going to be drawn to him, not the fake one. Uh, this was... Uh, Sometimes movies are very bad, and I don't like them. Uh, this was a very bad movie that I was just kind of okay with. Okay, I hated a lot of it, um, but I didn't hate the whole. But it, all, 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 when all was said and done, I was like, "All right, that was a thing." <laughs> I was surprised mostly at. I think the thing that I left the theater really considering was how incredibly wildly overreactive and strong those CinemaCon first responses were where people were just like this is one of the greatest superhero films of all time. I'm like did they pump nitrous oxide into their theater yeah. or something? Because I just I mean I get festival madness but come on. It was it was a there was a gulf between whatever I saw on screen and whatever they saw. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. I don't understand and it from go because the minute that those babies show up, I'm just like, oh yeah, oh dude, the baby thing, and then and then even worse, Andy Machete constantly backtracking, trying to come up with explanations for why the effects the effects were supposed to look that bad. No one believes him. Well, the no. the idea that like oh those the stuff they're in the speed world, so they look like that, and I'm like, yeah, but explain every shot of Barry in the suit where it's like composited in, and his neck looks like it's like. No, I, I don't. Twice as long as a human neck should be. I just don't believe him. I flat out don't believe him. Yeah. I think he's making, trying to make excuses right in the midst of the release for some of the most atrocious CGI work. And I just, I don't even mean like it, like the lower quality of CG. I mean just the work that was put into it. It looks so, just, it looks like PlayStation 2. You know, it, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm baffled. By, but what they were thinking, I, I don't believe for a second any of his excuses at all. I, I'm, yeah, I mean that, and that wasn't even close to the worst thing about the movie for me. So, I don't know. I'm, I'm glad you at least didn't find it as interminable as I did. But this is right up there with Batman v Superman for me, of like one of the worst superhero movies uh, made with a giant budget that I've ever seen. Yeah, this is pretty rough. I ain't gonna. I mean, it, it was what it was. Like, <laughs> yeah. I didn't. Um, I think what kept me going was that I never knew what was going to be around the corner. 
and it engaged me in that way. I did find it somewhat unpredictable. Yeah. But sometimes that unpredictability also meant I was kind of going, God, what other horrors are they going to foist on my But eyes? that was it. I mean, I agree with you. It went lot, lots of unpredictable places, but those unpredictable places were stupid. <laughs> like, this is not entertaining. This yeah. is just dumb. Yeah. Uh, there are a lot of bonus features here. Uh, I'm not going to go through so all expensive. of them. There's just a ton of bonus features here. A lot of them are EPKs, but a lot of them are little featurettes based on the characters, the Flash, the Supergirl. There's uh, 14, and a half, 14 and a quarter minutes of deleted scenes. Um, I got to tell you, John, I didn't watch any of these bonus features. I just didn't even want to revisit this fucking thing. Um, someday I might go back and for shits and grins and take a look at it. But, yeah. I mean, I'm keeping it because I keep every superhero movie they send me because I'm a superhero dork. What do you want? Plus, it might be fun to do like a commentary for at some point and just just rip it a new asshole as it well deserves. But, uh, yeah, maybe a rich riff track. They'll re-release it with the riff tracks uh, cut and then I'll get that version. But, we're going to contrast that with one of the best superhero movies I think has ever been made, and that is Batman Mask of the Phantasm, now available out of nowhere, they, with no, almost no pre-announcement. Warner Brothers slipped out this really nicely, uh, nice transfer to 4K of Batman Mask of the Phantasm, and this was sort of at the tail end of Batman the Animated Series, which is widely regarded as one of the best animated superhero series ever i mean i can't imagine arguing otherwise although i'm still justice league unlimited is number one for me but this is easily a number two um and this was weirdly romantic and touching has really cool villain um a neat mystery cool design aesthetic this is the when people are like who's your favorite batman i'm always like yeah it's this one this is my favorite batman think of how think of how you could you could take the screenplay as is for Mask of the Phantasm, mm-hmm. and do it live action, and it would be the best Batman movie that's ever been released. Yeah, you're probably right. And like, I don't think that it is in animated form. I think it's a little too cheap. It looks like the TV show does, but screenplay wise, it it could very well be the best Batman on paper. Yeah, I mean, it, it it's upgraded from the look of the show, but not by a giant amount, not significantly. So yeah, obviously that, especially because we saw even in the few years after that, with like I said, as it went on to justice league and and Superman, there was definitely an upgrade even then as they realized, Oh shit, people love this stuff. Let's spend more money on it. Um, So yeah, it has a very dated aged look to it, but I still think like, even in terms of the, the shot choices and the, the noirishness of it, the chiaroscuro is all really beautiful. Um, and I largely really like the performances here. Obviously, Kevin Conroy as Batman is, is kind of unassailable. I think he's the, he is my Batman. When you go, who's your favorite Batman? It's Kevin Conroy. He's like in my head when I think Batman, he's the voice that I hear. And yeah, this, I mean, it went places the show wouldn't go in terms of like really character development mainly, which is interesting. Like really developing who Bruce Wayne is as, as a person. I think this is terrific. If you've never seen it, you really, really should. I understand being cynical at this point because we are kind of batted out. <laughs> There's someone that'll like, stop making Batman stuff. Go back and visit one of the classics. There's not a lot of extra features here. There's just Kevin Conroy, I Am the Knight, because sadly Conroy passed away just recently. A guy who was known not just for his career as Batman, but for being an incredibly generous, kind human being. Um, and this gets into some of that as well as... uh talking with people who worked with them and how much they loved him. We lost our Two-Face today, too. I saw that. Yeah, Richard Mall. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, the, totally well worth your time. Uh, go pick it up. 
Our last film today is a Criterion, and it's a release of what I think is honestly would probably make it to my, well, definitely for comedies, top 10 comedies of all time. Uh, it would definitely be in my top 50 movies of all time, too, which is the 1987 fantasy adventure comedy film directed by Rob Reiner, The Princess Bride. And I, this is one of those ones I just never get tired of watching it. Every time I watch it, there's just not a moment of it that I don't find completely charming, brilliantly written. Um, written by William Goldman, who is a legend in the industry, both in film and in uh, just regular publishing. But even he was like, this is the best thing I ever wrote. I almost retired after it because I'm like, I'm never going to write anything better than this. Uh, and he was right. He never did write anything better than this. This is the best thing he ever did. Uh, I, It's just... I don't even know how to describe it. Like He described the experience of writing it, which is one of the bonus features on here, of like he didn't even really write it like something else wrote it because he couldn't crack it. He had the basic Pazuzu. outlines, right? Pazuzu <laughs> wrote it, but like he couldn't crack what a wonderful it day for a prince's bride. And then he's like, I don't even really remember writing it. It just yeah. kind of happened. Uh, <laughs> that's, and he ended up writing the, the novelization of it as well, which is really, 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 really good. Um, yeah, what a great cast, too. Carrie Elwes, Robin Wright, Mandy Patinkin. Uh, people always think of him from, uh, what was it, like CSI or something he was on? Or, some law, or law and Order. Or, but this was his, like, you know, playing the the the, the, swaz, uh, the swashbuckling Spanish swordsman. Uh, Chris Sarandon, Wallace Shawn, Andre the Giant, and Christopher Guest. Like I said, I just think it's as, as close to perfection as you can get for a movie. I think this cast and that script are alchemical like it's um it's you're taking these two things and mixing them together into something and making gold yeah um i'm always surprised when i go back and watch princess bride this is gonna be like this is gonna get you hate mail Uh oh i'm always no we only get hate mail if, if the movie cost a dollar 95 to make it's true um someone's gotta attack I feel like you I personally give somebody a dollar 95 <laughs> in the mail um i'm always i always forget how uh cheap it looks mm-hmm. uh like it doesn't it's well, not it's like, stagey, but it's I, not like a lot is put into production design. Even even certain, even like the sets and things are sort of very contained, almost TV like. It sounds stagey, uh, but I I've, I I got the feeling that was intentional to some extent as well, yeah. though. Um, but again, I think I think that cast and that budget really are the they are the key. I think anybody else. Uh, on either side of that, you know, one rewrite too many, or uh, you don't have Wallace Shawn and you have to settle for, you know, who would they have settled for back then? I don't know. I don't know either. You can't get Wallace Shawn. Danny he's, DeVito? Yeah, so it's just, yeah, it's kind of like, I, I think it becomes something else. Uh, I think it it's it's a little, it's got a lightning in a bottle quality of that cast, that script, those people, that director mm. come together to make that, and the balance is so perfect that anything else uh, messes it up. And other great car- side gear, Carol Kane, Billy Crystal, uh, 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 Peter Falk, how could I forget, who's the grandfather reading the story to his grandson, Fred Savage. They've actually said, because they get asked every couple of years, hey, would you guys ever consider doing a remake? They're like, no. And then someone brought up, well, what if it was Fred Savage reading the story to his, his child or his grandson? They're like, we'd consider it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, but even so, it's like, how would you possibly duplicate this? I don't love it as much as other people do. I should say that as well. Okay. Um, so while I can acknowledge all those things, it just I don't have the deep abiding love for it like a lot of people, and that's just a I don't know. That's a personal taste thing. I'm I'm not sure it's 
maybe it has to do with when I saw it. Um, but it didn't grow roots in me like other mm. 80s comedies. Right. Um, but it, but it, it's good. Like, I'll acknowledge. Like, it's yeah, it's really, really good. It just doesn't have... I don't revisit it uh, like other things. Okay. Uh, this is probably a once-a-year one for me. This is yeah, one of those very it's favorites. Not, it's not. So the, I haven't seen it since probably it came out on... I haven't seen it since it probably came out on DVD. Maybe, oh, wow. So. Okay. Uh, this is a the 4K version Criterion has put out. It comes in a really nice sort of purple book that looks like sort of the book he's reading in the movie, which is kind of cool with like, you know, actual pages and stuff in there of extra stuff. Uh, the 4K looks tremendous. I think it's a gorgeous transfer. Um, it's an audio 5.1 lossless soundtrack. Uh, there are a bunch of bonus features here with some new extras and some old ones from the 2009 MGM Blu-ray that came out, although there are a few on there that aren't on here. I I considered keeping both, and I looked at them, I was like, eh, the ones that, that lost aren't that big a deal. I'm not. Yeah. Uh, I'm fine with just having this version. There is an audio commentary with uh, the director, the screenwriter, the producer, and Billy Crystal and Peter Falk recorded for the 1997 Criterion Laserdisc release of this. Uh, there's a reading of the, go- the novel, The Princess Bride, read by Rob Reiner, uh, there is a 2012 extra with Reiner, Elwes, and Wright talking about the film uh, in 2012. There's the uh, 2018 Pure Enchantment supplement with uh, a professor at Columbia talking about the script and William Goldman's writing. Uh, the Tapestry, which is another 2018 ex- extra, which uh, looks at a tapestry, uh, actual physical tapestry that William Goldman had made, which hangs in his home, which reflects the film. Um, and then there's a bunch of 2009 vintage extras. There's uh, the art of fencing, fairy, uh, fairy tales and folklore, and more. This is a really, really, really packed Criterion edition. And for fans of the film, I'd say this is easily as good a version of the film as as exists to own and have in your collection. It's certainly the prettiest looking uh, version of it. Yeah. So now we've reached that point. We've believe it or not. Here's what. Here's what we're. Gonna, I have. So I don't think that. I think you this time. You should pick the pick of the week, and then I'll tell you whether or not I agree or veto. Because there's a lot of stuff in here yeah. that's really worth seeing. There's about four or five titles I can think of where if you named, I would agree. So don't leave it up to me. Uh, I, I would say it's it's a three-way tie between the Tenebrae 4K, partially because it's a the really nice upgrade, and it's packed with many features, at least one of which is a feature-length documentary that's kind of essential. Mm-hmm. Um Weird Science 4K, which is, again, the first time we've ever seen this version of the film and is no end of extras and it looks ter- and sounds terrific. And then, of course, The Flash. No, just kidding. Uh, Princess Bride, which is, you know, the completely solid uh, version of one of my favorite films. All right. I'm going to give it to Princess Bride but based on the wide appeal of it because there are, if you're going to own it, this is sort of like the end-all, be-all version. I would like to throw a minor bone out to hardcore. Hardcore is great. But yeah, Princess, I'll align with you on Princess Bride. Fair enough. Well, thank you, John. I know that that one, we got through it in an hour and 40 minutes. Wow. And that's a, a the huge most stack of titles. The most movies we've done in one show. Yeah, an insane amount of movies to do <laughs> in one show. And I've even got another stack for you for oh, your next God, show. Oh, God, no. <laughs> yeah, you'll like these, though. It's a I, good stack. I see some that I already know that I like. Fair enough. Yeah. So. And there's some you probably won't even need to watch because yeah. you're like, I just saw I that. I memorized it. <laughs> anyway, so we'll be back soon. I've got another show coming up with Wright. He's already got his stack and his well into it. Uh, I think he got some of the stuff that was like a little more on the edgy, weird side. So we'll see how that goes. Okay. okay. <laughs> Whereas you've got the commercial stack for this next one. You're right. like, oh, everything there is commercial. It. All right. Fair enough.